Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Sahil from Gumroad. Sahil is the CEO of Gumroad. And in this conversation, we went into a lot of different topics. One was being at peace and how Sahil got to this place of being at peace, whether he's actually at peace or not. And we spoke about figure drawing and we spoke about NFTs and Web3. This was all encompassing. And if you're a person who likes this podcast, I bet you'd like this episode as well. So yeah, if you do have any feedback for me about this episode, let me know on Twitter at Hey Danny Miranda. Let's get right into the episode with Sahil. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. Sahil, thank you for coming on the podcast. And, you know, I just asked you, what would make a win for you for this conversation? And you said, no win. I'm at peace. And I'd love for you to start and expand on that. Why are you at peace right now? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's a good thing, to be honest. Um, But I just don't really want anything more than what I have right now. So... Yeah, I mean, I kind of, you know, just kind of do stuff to do it and don't spend a ton of time thinking about, you know, goals or what I want out of certain certain things. Um, I'm trying to just enjoy the, at least, you know, around the, especially around the kind of the occupational side of things. Like I definitely have, you know, fitness goals and other things outside, but but generally around business and stuff, I don't, I don't feel like I need, I want or need anything more than I I currently have, you know, people ask, like, I have this book that just came out, The Minimalist Entrepreneur, last month, and so many people have asked me, like, how's it doing? You know, did it meet your expectations? Like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't, I really don't care. Like, I wrote the book, which was the hard part, um, you know, and, and also the part under my control, like, the other stuff I can't control. So, yeah, I don't, I don't care if it sells, like, one copy or a million copies, um, truly, so... Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's fun. Cause I just get to go on podcasts and just like rant about stuff without having to think about, Oh, I need to like sell the book or, or do, you know, uh, mention these five talking points or, or whatever. Right. Like they, they're kind of lower stakes conversations, which is, which is nice. Yeah. That, I think that's a beautiful place to operate from and a very peaceful place to operate from as well. And it leads me to ask about when you noticed this change happen or you've always been someone like this. No, Somebody definitely not. Just been a- definitely not been someone like this. <laughs> I mean, and I'm sure it's kind of, you know, a sign curve, right? Uh, in the sense that you probably have to work at it. It's not something you get and you're kind of done or something like that. But I remember the first time I felt like this was, or at least that I, you know, in this way, in this context, um, maybe as a kid, you know, or something, but was when I published reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company, which is a blog post that I published in February of 2019. And that was kind of the documented, like the history of Gumroad. And it's probably what most people who know me, know me for, um, maybe even more than Gumroad itself as a company. And when I wrote that blog post, I was sort of 
at peace in a sense where I had sort of figured out, okay, I have a life. It's actually really great. And I don't need Gumroad to be a certain kind of thing for me to consider myself successful. That was kind of part of the, you know, writing it. And when I wrote it, when I hit publish, I was like, I was kind of done actually. Like I had kind of written Gumroad off in the, in the sense that I didn't expect it to return any capital to me at least anytime soon. I was sort of at peace with, with the kind of last eight years of me working in the startup industry. And I started really focusing on writing and painting. And that's really what I was doing. Like when I hit publish on that article, I was spending 20 to 30 hours a week painting and, and drawing. Like that's my day. My day job was that. And I was kind of like doing the four hour week thing at Gumroad. And yeah, when I hit publish, I was like, I don't need this to, it's similar to the book. Like I don't need this to do well. I just need this to hit, public you know i need to hit publish so that other people can read this and i don't i kind of like it's it's somebody else's problem now in a sense and uh and and then it sort of ironically almost like it did so well that it kind of gave me a platform and gave me all these like followers and now i tweet about tech and i'm in tech and i have a venture fund and blah blah, blah. all this stuff has sort of happened since that that so maybe like my life trajectory isn't exactly what i thought it was going to be when i hit publish on that thing but that was, I remember that very distinctly. And so now when Gumroad is doing well or we raise cr- the crowdfunding round or I publish the book or we rebrand the website or whatever, like it's all under, you know, I, I have this reminder that everyone c- can read that's like I'm happy with what I have, you know, mm-hmm. which means that if Gumroad 10x is or whatever, like it doesn't matter. Or if Gumroad fails, Gumroad goes to zero, like it doesn't matter because I'm, I assumed that. You know, I kind of assumed a zero. It's kind of like you ever watch a war movie and like someone like almost dies and then, but they don't. And then they're kind of like, no, you know, the most badass person because they have nothing to lose at that point. Like they kind of mm-hmm. consider themselves dead or whatever. That's kind of how I felt. Obviously not the same way, but that's kind of how I felt when I published that article. It's just like I died and I kind of, I'm documenting this as kind of a time to capsule and I'm going to go basically be reborn as a painter and writer. And that was like my new kind of identity in a, in a way. Uh, and so when all this new startup stuff started to happen, I still kind of look back and I'm like, this is all just for fun. Like, I think part of the reason I get to be a little irreverent about startups and building stuff and even my venture stuff is probably not super orthodox. I think the reason I get to I do that is because it, I am okay with it all going to zero. You know, like I am okay taking those sorts of risks because I'm more interested in having fun and taking risks and trying new things that people haven't tried before than, you know, just being a really great VC or like raising a ton of money or being rich or whatever they, you know, more common metrics for success generally are. Yeah, it reminds me of Marcus Aurelius saying, I'm going to renounce my possessions once every seven years because I want to feel what it feels like to have nothing. And you basically did that in your own way and renounced building a massive company. And now you're at peace and now you're building a massive company. It's funny how that works out. And it's also funny how we often are chasing the thing so that we can then be at peace, right? Why do you want to build a massive business? Well, so I can feel good about myself and... And that's not the only reason, but to be at peace is often 
a real driving indicator for a lot of our actions. Mm-hmm. And you seem to have realized that. Yeah, totally. That's totally true. I, there was a great, uh, I think it was a Michael Crine book I read recently, and he had a line in there that it was great, which is like, all human behavior is problem solving, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was pretty, pretty, pretty wise. Um, and it, it really, yeah, it kind of really made me think, actually, where it's like, oh, yeah, like, that makes sense. Like, basically, anytime I do something, inherently, it's to solve a problem that I have, right? Um, which I think is useful to know. <laughs> like, it's useful to be like, hmm, what problem am I solving, right? Like, why am I trying to build a billion-dollar company? What problem am I trying to, to solve? Um, or maybe what fear am I trying to resolve or, or, or something like that? But I, I do think it's a, it's a helpful heuristic to kind of evaluate, like, why you do things. Should you be doing them, you know, at all? Um, more people could probably gain from doing that. Yeah. And one thing that I admire about you is the question of where do I get the most energy from? and then actually executing against that. And so I'm curious in this moment, what is giving you the most energy? Yeah, it's a good, it's a really good question. Um, and many people I've talked to recently are like, you don't have energy right now. <laughs> mm. So maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm, not, I'm the wrong person to talk to about this, but I, I, there, there are a few things. I mean, I'm kind of excited by the fact that like, I don't have a lot of energy in a sense. Like I'm not anxious in the sense that like, I need to go do something right now that I'm, waiting for, you know, like that feeling when you're on a train and you just like, you're late to a meeting, that sort of feeling. Um, like, can this thing go any faster? Like I, I, I dislike that feeling personally. Uh, so I'm glad that I don't have it, but, but there are certain things that I'm really excited about. Like one, one thing I'm really excited about is we did this crowdfunding round for Gumroad. Great. Awesome. Democratizing, you know, startup investing, etc. Hopefully more people do it over time, but certainly many more people, should be, I think, doing that. And I think one of the bottlenecks to it is liquidity, right? You invest in a startup and basically your money goes into a black box for potentially several years, right? Before you see any return. And most people are not comfortable making those kinds of investments. So the illiquidity, which most people would, I think, would say it's a feature, not a bug. But I do think if we want to open it up to more people, we need to build liquidity into it uh, at an earlier kind of stage, um, then, you know, obviously public markets are, are fully liquid. Um, so that's something I'm thinking a lot about is how do I get Gumroad to a place where people can not only invest in Gumroad, but can also sell part of their position in Gumroad and these, these sorts of things. Um, so that's something I'm very excited about because I think I'm, I'm in a sort of pole position to execute on, on that if there are things there. Um, so I'm doing a lot of kind of research and talking to a lot of people, about that kind of idea. Um, what else? Um, I am excited about the book. Like I, I, I do hope that it like resonates with certain people um, that want to be free and start a business to become financially independent and these sorts of ideas. I, I do think it's like a good encapsulation. I feel great that I don't longer have to have these conversations one-on-one with everybody that DMs me on Twitter because now I can just say, hey, like I literally put everything I know about this stuff like in a book. Please read it and then follow up with questions you have and I'm happy to answer those and there'll be better questions and I'll have better answers for them. Uh, and, and then I'm also kind of excited about investing in startups. Like I do think there's like a sea change happening. There's a kind of a changing of the guard. There's so many more companies getting started and I would love to be able to reinvent the business model of VC more and more over time. Uh, 
I don't know how exactly to do that, but uh, I am interested in, in, in that aspect because I think if, if you can increase the amount of money that goes into, into startups, more people can start companies and raise money for those companies if they choose to and ultimately make the world better. So those are some of the things I'm, I'm excited about. And then I love drawing and painting still. So uh, definitely get excited every time I get to draw and paint, which is you know still a few hours a week at least. Well, we'll touch on all of those things hopefully in the conversation. Um, but what I'm really interested in is, you know, I'm an investor in Gumroad. I, when you guys had that crowdfund, I put my own money down and I'm saying to myself, wow, this is exciting. This is a company I believe in. This is a company I could see doing well in the future. And Sahil is democratizing access to that. And what was really interesting was that just what was it? Six months later, you have NFTs start popping off and you have, yeah. And it's like, it was almost like it was too soon in a way for web three and NFTs. When yeah. you did that crowdfunding, I don't know. Was it a year ago when that like, not even it honestly, seems that like was yesterday. in March, that was in March of this year. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that was in March of 2021. Yep. And, and was NFTs something or a token something that you guys considered at that point definitely not no i mean definitely not yeah i mean even today i would never never consider it um just because they're they're securities so like we can't sell we you can't use crypto to 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 sell securities um in the u.s at least like today so yeah just the regulatory burden would not make sense i mean it's cool and i invest in nfts and i have lots of cool stuff but yeah, for Gumroad, I, 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 you know, we might support it as a feature uh, or something, but um, as a way to raise money, I don't, I don't think it makes sense for any sort of for-profit business. Now, what if you were starting Gumroad today? Would that be something you incorporate? Would that have been something you would incorporate? I mean, it's tempting because you can raise a, an insane amount of money at a stupidly high valuation because uh, retail investors, crypto investors are willing to pay a lot more than any other group of people uh, right now. Why is that? Because they can invest the, the normal way, right? So one of the reasons is they have a ton of Bitcoin, they have a ton of Ethereum or, or whatnot, and they don't want to take it, turn it into fiat because then they're going to have to pay taxes on it. So they have hundreds of billions of dollars or tens of billions of dollars sitting around, which by the way is like venture capital scale amount of money, except much more kind of, you know, not held by the same sort of institutional gatekeepers and they need to deploy it. They want to deploy it, right? Cause they want to turn that money. They want to invest that money too. And so they, there's just a lot of capital sitting around waiting to be invested in crypto. Um, and they don't get access to like the startup deals that, you know, venture capitalists generally get access to like I do. And so, what do you have left is all the crazy crypto stuff. So that's a big reason that I think it's it, the, the prices are, are much higher than traditionally. Um, but I, so, you know, it's tempting Would I do it. Probably not. I still think like ultimately it, you know, if you're raising money for a startup and you believe at some point you're going to sell the business or IPO or, or do any of these things like then, you know, you can't really use crypto uh, to do it. It's just not sort of feasible. Um, I do think if you're doing a crypto native idea, like a non Gumroad idea, then it makes more sense. If you're really building utility value into the, into the token and stuff, I think there's a case to be made there, but for something like Gumroad, like I don't, I don't think it makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. Interesting. And 
what role do you think NFTs and crypto will play in Gumroad's future moving forward? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely thinking about it. I'm very, um, I try to be focused with, you know, we just launched this big rebrand. Um, I'm super excited about it. I think it sets us up for the next 10 years. It gives us like a really nice design aesthetic to play with going forward that I, I think our old design was just getting old and out of date. And I'm excited for this new one and definitely has like web three ish vibes, um, mm-hmm. which was intentional. Um, but yeah, the, you know, ultimately the way that I think about everything in the, in the government context is how do we help creators make more money? And I think the primary innovation way to do that is to unlock a new business model for them. And so one, one thing I do really love about NFTs and smart contracts and the, the idea of them is, is that, you know, the creator can get paid in perpetuity. I think that's a really interesting idea. Uh, I, that's generally what I focus on. It's like the business model stuff. Um, and so I do think there's a future in which Gumroad potentially supports allowing creators to sell, you know, to basically unlock kind of secondary transactions on their products. Um, and maybe crypto is kind of the backbone for that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the that's sort of the closest I've gotten to, okay, there's something interesting here. Um, it's still early days. Like, I think a lot of people often feel late to these things like, Oh, it's so late. I can't invest in NFTs. They're too expensive, whatever. Um, but I still think it's incredibly early. Like most people don't know what an NFT is. Right. So I still think it's, it's early, early days. And Gumroad is, you know, if it makes sense, we will definitely participate in, in it. Yeah. I heard on another podcast you were on that if you just had a $1 million windfall come in, you'd potentially buy a crypto punk. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that would be one of the. I, I do think it's as a, as an investment. I actually think it's 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 one of the better ones Why? you could make right now. I mean, I, I just think in terms of. I mean, so you know, I I do a lot of art, as I mentioned. I'm a painter, um, and so I I think I look back at art history, and I think CryptoPunks will be sort of something that will be talked about a thousand years from now. Looking back. Um, and I think if that's the case, and there's only ten thousand of them, then presumably that owning one of the ten thousand of that will be worth, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, maybe more. Uh, but yeah, it's just very rare to be at the genesis of a new movement like Pablo Picasso, Van Gogh, uh, etc. And when you are, you know those things end up being worth a lot of money. So I think there's a sort of a thesis to be made that like, you know, in, in sort of a cultural asset, you want to be able to, you know, you're really betting on like, is this relevant a hundred, 200, 300, 400 years from now. Right. And I do think crypto punks have that potential in a way that very few other assets do. Speaking about the genesis of a new movement, you were the third company to use the word creator and now we're at the point where everyone's a creator, everyone wants to be a creator, and it's so commonplace. Did you sense when you first started that you were at the start of a new movement of creators, or was it just something that happened and when you look back, you're like, oh my God, we were at the beginning of that? Yeah, I mean, in some, some ways, um, I felt like we were early onto something. I didn't consider it like a at the time, an independent movement, I felt, 
and I, you know, I still even feel like this with crypto generally, like, but so maybe it's just a, a kind of a bias that I have, but I felt like we, I felt like what was going to happen and what we were in the beginning of was all of these traditional creators, you know, musicians, designers, writers, filmmakers, et cetera, like all these kinds of people uh, were building all these direct relationships, right, with their audiences. And I felt like we were going to see this massive sea change. I mean, similar to how people talk about NFTs today and in the sense that like ownership, you, you know, would change. Creators would have a lot more leverage, they would be able to build direct fan relationships. They wouldn't need to work with labels and publishers and recording studios and all these sorts of things. Like everyone would just have like a laptop, iPhone, internet connection and, you know, a bunch of software and and you're done. And that would sort of 10x or 100x like the amount of musicians, the amount of writers, the amount of filmmakers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sort of, you know, unbundle or democratize like all of those creative industries. That didn't happen. <laughs> uh Actually, all of those traditional gatekeepers are doing better than they've ever done before in this new world. Um, but um, yeah, that's that you know. But but definitely, like we have seen a lot of a lot of those the sort of sub theses of the idea kind of play out. I think. Yeah, it reminds me of how people talk about or used to talk about the internet. I guess in the two thousands, in the very early days, it was going to be a utopia. It was going to change the world and. It did change the world. It just wasn't the utopia. So I think with these new technologies, the takeaway is often that we know that they're going to create some sort of massive change, but we're often wrong about the way that change actually manifests. And I think crypto... Yeah, I mean, ultimately, like, it's up to the people, right? Yeah. Like, it's... And people are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like, they do a lot of weird stuff. And so, yeah, it's really it's really unpredictable. Like, you can you can build you know, like a, a new piece of technology. It can be like a weapon or a car or whatever, but the way people end up using it, it generally, I think surprises, uh, surprises everybody. Um, and also the, the network effect, you know, it's not just, it's like a, you know, it's like a, uh, it's like a double pivoted pendulum, right? Like one pendulum is pretty easy to predict. Two pendulums is almost impossible to predict. Now imagine humanity is like 7 billion pendulums, right? Like that's what, it is. And so, yeah, it's just, it's just really hard. Like no one I think can predict what will kind of happen in the future. And I, I think anytime someone tries, you should, you know, you should be skeptical. Have you paid attention to a lot of Balaji stuff or Balaji? Yeah. Because yeah, he's a good yeah, friend of mine. It seems like really good at predicting the future. And I'm curious, <laughs> I don't know if he intends to be that way, but do you, are you skeptical of his predictions or like how do you I think he's skeptical yeah, of his predictions true. to be honest. <laughs> you know, the thing with Twitter is sometimes everyone sounds a little bit more confident mm -hmm. in their views as as they probably actually are cuz you know, generally when you talk to someone in person they're like, "Oh yeah, you know, this this like if you listen to him on like the Tim Ferriss podcast and stuff, he's a little bit more nuanced yeah. about a lot of these sort of views." And also, you know, he's he's thinking on a very long time horizon, right? Like he's thinking 2030, 2040 sort of you know, and, and, and trying to work backward from that world into our reality today. Um, he's certainly been right about a lot of things, you know, famously for kind of coronavirus being something uh, worth paying attention to in, you know, January of last year. Um, but I do, I, 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 again, I think, I think he's right. He's going to be right about a lot of the technology that I think he is going to be right on. I think that's a lot more predictable. I think it's much harder to predict. Well, what actually happens here, mm -hmm. right? Like the fact that the government printed 
I don't know how many trillions of dollars, I think was surprising to many people. I don't think, you know, now it feels obvious, maybe looking back, uh, and there's almost like no other thing you could imagine the government doing. But if you said like three years ago, the government was going to print trillions of dollars because people were at home for a couple months, like, and will continue to print trillions of dollars, even though like COVID has mostly been sort of phased out, at least in the US, like, I think people would be pretty surprised, you know? On both sides of the aisle. And I think most people would have sort of disagreed with that. But then somehow that this happened and everyone agrees that that was like rel- relatively like the right thing to do, given that every country seems to be doing it or whatever. So like it's kind of – it's interesting, right? Like I, I – and so, you know, the, the other thing is predicting the future is not hard. Like for example, I can tell you almost beyond a, a doubt that in 2040 we will not have gas-powered cars, right? Pretty easy prediction. But which company does it, right? How fast does it happen? When does it hit the S-curve? Like, how much will it cost? Who will get access to it first? Which country will win the market? You know, that stuff, I think, is quite unpredictable. Um, So I think on a macro basis, you can sort of predict. Like, everyone, you know, laptops will be faster, right? Batteries will last longer. You know, things like that, I think, are pretty, you know, pretty, pretty easy to predict. But, like, you don't make money by saying that, right? You have to turn it into a a real timed, non-consensus bet. And I think that is much harder to do. I think the beauty of people like Balaji is they are not just talking, they are investing. And so you can actually, you know, you know, he talks a lot about, you know, verified on the blockchain, right? Like this idea that you shouldn't just be able to say, oh, the New York Times said it, but say, look, this is recorded on the blockchain that this person did this or that or whatever. Which is hard to do. Like it's it's a sort of it's it's an uns, it's not a solved problem yet. Um, but everyone has this right, which is the blockchain of the U, you know U.S. dollars is also kind of a blockchain in a sense, and there's a ledger, and uh, you know you can look at me for example and say, okay, Saho invested in these startups, and this is how he did, and it's obviously again not super predictable. So you know you could be an amazing investor, but have made the wrong decisions except for one time or, or vice versa. But I think it's a good proxy, right? Skin in the game. And so ultimately like Balji hasn't, you know, invested in crypto and, you know, in a variety of different ways and, and has been rewarded for that financially. And I think with some credibility and on that, he's definitely been right on, right. Which is basically the Silicon Valley exit. Like one of the, one of the most meaningful things that he wrote that I, I, I listen, I, I think I might've even been there in person but I remember uh, listening to a talk that he did called Silicon Valley Exit or something like that in 2013. Uh, and it was basically about this idea that Silicon Valley was going to move to the cloud, um, which in 2013, like, was quite a hot take. <laughs> um, but again, like, one of those things that, like, it's it's almost, you know, it's predictable. It's just when, right? Uh it's like, yes, at some point in the future, this will happen. It did it, you know, would have people have predicted it would have happened, you know, seven years later? No way. Like, it happened much faster. And I mean, that's the beauty of, I, th- I think it's why Balaji deserves everything that he had. Is he was making predictions based 30, 40 years in the future. The fact that he's seeing them come true, like, seven, eight, ten years later. Like, no one, I, you know, I know a lot of people in crypto. No one in crypto thought that Bitcoin was going to be worth $50,000 in 2020 or 2021. Literally nobody would have thought that. Um, that's a 50,000x return in 10 years. Wow. Uh, less than 10 years. Like, 
It's, it's insane. Like literally never before in the history of humanity has there been a return profile of an investment like that. Now there's been multiple Dogecoin, blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, no, no one. Uh, if you said a thousand, we would have all been super happy because that's like a thousand return. That's like investing in Facebook, you know, uh, series A or something like that. But the fact that, yeah, it's like, it's trumped every, so I think that, I think it's, it's happened a lot earlier than people thought actually. Um, which may be interesting because maybe people don't realize that, but like, yeah, most people in crypto were expecting this thing to take 20, 30 years. Do you think that the reason why the predictions are happening faster is because the rate of technological technology is increasing? So what used to would take something that would have taken 30 years in the past is now taking 10 years because the world is more connected than ever. And if something hits, it really hits on a massive scale. And do you think that's going to continue if you believe that's the case? I hope that it continues. I think it's, it's, it's a very optimistic take, I think, which is great to, to say that, yeah, like basically these things are happening faster. Uh, and I think that's true to a degree that there is this sort of compounding of ideas right? That can happen. Like the fact that we got to a RNA vaccine super quickly, uh, is awesome, uh, and would not have been possible or even no one, even when Trump said, we're going to have a vaccine tomorrow, everyone's like, we're never going to have a vaccine tomorrow. And then we got one. Trump was actually correct on that issue more than basically any other politician was, uh, funny how that works. But, uh, um, but yeah, it's, yeah. Now it's like the political like lens on COVID is sort of on vaccines is like kind of gone 180 on both sides, which is kind of hilarious. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do think generally that's true that we are, I like to think that we are underestimating our potential. Um, why? Because we can only, we look at, we look at the present and we extrapolate mm-hmm. into the future and we're just really bad at, at sort of, you know, like Nassim Taleb talks about black swans, but I also think we're really bad at predicting white swan events too. Like for example, Let's say we have, I forget if it's fission or fusion, but like, let's say we have nuclear fusion, fission, I think it's fission, nuclear fission tomorrow, right? Basically like planes can fly forever. Cars never need to get charged ever again. Every phone, like literally the, the idea of a battery, we just stop thinking about. Just like we don't really think about hard drive space anymore, right? Like it's not really something you have to think too deeply about unless you're like a professional videographer or something like that. Um, you don't even have to think about like save, right? Like there's no save button anywhere anymore, right? Uh, so that could happen, uh, that could happen tomorrow and it would change everything. And we would have to recalibrate like our entire future based on this new idea. Right. Or for example, let's say we figure out, figure out how to do proof of personhood in crypto. Right. I I personally think that's the largest problem to solve in crypto, which is how do you do one person, one vote in crypto? You can't, right. You either have to do proof of work, proof of stake, but there's no proof of personhood or, or something like that. Uh, that will be solved. Uh, I think it's 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 mathematically and physically possible to solve, so it will be solved at some point. Uh, it's just a matter of when, and when that gets solved, like then I, I see a path towards like a, a sort of a a fully crypto based sort of society and city and political system, etc. Um, but that could be tomorrow. <laughs> that could be in ten years. That could be in 20 years. We all know that it's possible. 
we all know that humans are pretty darn smart, so we'll probably figure it out. But for example, like, will there be a war that gets in the way or will there, you know, will the U.S. government try to block it because it's like effectively competitive to them? All of those kinds of things are very, very unpredictable. But uh, yeah, I, so I think it's, un, it's unpredictable. But yeah, I mean, this is the, you know, one investing tip. I know you're not supposed to give like financial advice or whatever, but generally the beauty of, you know, one, one, one takeaway is like you just invest for longer periods of time, right? Like it's much easier to be correct about Bitcoin if you try to predict if it's going to go up over a 10-year horizon than a one-year horizon. And it's much easier to be right over a one-year horizon than like a one-week horizon, right? Like no one can predict what the price of Bitcoin is going to be tomorrow. But I'm pretty confident that 10 years from now, the price of Bitcoin will be higher than it is today, right? And so it's 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 sort of a useful, I think, heuristic is like make long bets um, and then be patient, you know, uh, and then see what happens. Um, unfortunately, that means the feedback loops can be really long, right? Like, for example, Bology is probably thinking now, like, damn, I should have invested like as much as I could and, you know, 10x what I did in all of these things because I was way writer. And now he's probably doing that. Uh, but it, the sort of feedback loops are, are quite long, right? Like you have, if you, if you believe that sort of there's a 10-year feedback loop on investing, then you basically have four cycles or five cycles, you know, to do it, right? Um, what do you mean by five cycles? Meaning if, 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 if you are recalibrating your model every 10 years, uh, in a significant way. Like, let's say, for example, I can say personally, I invested in a bunch of startups in 2011. And I didn't know I was any good or not. I had no idea if I was good or not. And so I basically stopped. And then I, in 2020, when I, I got some uh, liquidity from one of the investments, I was like, oh, shit, I'm actually pretty good at this. Like, I'm up <laughs> 15x in 10 years. Like, that's, or nine years. Like, that's not bad. Um, I should have done a lot more of this. I should have invested in Stripe and Figma instead of just being friends with them. <laughs> and if I did that, I would be, you know, up a hundred X or something or more, you know? Um, but, uh, I didn't. So now I can react to that. Now I have like a, you know, now I invest $10 million a year. Right. So it's a hundred X what I used to be investing. Um, but that the, the returns of this, you know, investing sort of thesis or theory or whatever, or whatever practice that I have now is going to show up in 10 more years. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I basically have like 2020, 2030, 2040, 2050 is when I will be really revisiting my, and it's not just me, right? Like the other thing that's really tricky about investing is you have to almost guess, you almost have to predict what other people are going to think too. Like I can't just say, oh, Bitcoin's going to go up in value, right? Because that's not true. They, they, ultimately you have to predict that other people are going to make you go up in value, which is much harder to predict. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for example, I could... I think I am a good investor. I think I can deploy $100 million a year, but I don't have that ability until 10 years go by. I take the $10 million a year. People look at it and say, oh, wow, you turn $10 million a year into $30 million a year. That's great. Here's $100 million, you know? And so you, you kind of 10x every 10 years, I think is sort of the best you can do. Like if you 10x every 10 years, you're, you're effectively going to be a billionaire, like almost inevitably. Why invest if you're at peace? Um, that's a good question. Uh, it keeps me, honestly, I have so much free time. I don't know what to do with it. Um, and I think investing is like a really easy job, 
you know, like smart people tell me cool, smart ideas. And I, I'm like, oh, that sounds good. Here's $100,000, right? So it's like a very low overhead, low stress, at least the way that I do it, um, job. It also makes me smarter, I think. Like I need, you know, one thing I do like to do is get smarter and like learn more. And I think investing is a really great sort of, I wouldn't say excuse is the right word, but it's a sort of a, it's an accountability metric in a way where like I will, it will force me to keep learning, keep paying attention. You know, otherwise I may just stop. Right. Um, so I think that's like another one. Um, it does, it definitely like makes me less at peace. Right. It's like, Oh, why am I investing? Um, when I don't need to be making any more money, but I do think it's nice to be like, Oh, I made this bet and I was right. And it's like, it's, it's satisfying to look at a tweet and be like, oh, I was right about that tweet, right? <laughs> but it's much more satisfying. And also it's like a paper trail to be like, hey, look, I'm smart. Like I got this right, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely I would say that's sort of evidence that I'm not fully at peace for sure. Because if I were, then I would probably stop doing it. Uh, same with Naval, by the way, right? Like he invests a lot. Um, why? <laughs> why? Uh, good questions, right? But ultimately, you know, 24 hours a day is a long time. Like if you're financially independent, you know, post-economic uh, or whatever, uh, 24 hours a day is a long time to kill. Um, there's only so much meditation. There's only so much hiking. There's only so much cooking and cleaning that you can do um, before you're like, man, I still have seven hours before I sleep. What am I doing with my time? So uh, definitely a point of privilege or whatever, but yeah, it's, a, it's something to keep, to keep me busy and keep me smart. Um, and it's also honestly like the thing that I struggle with the most probably is like being social mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and maybe this sounds insane, but like investing is like an excuse for me to hang out with cool, smart people right? Like when you start a company, you kind of just disappear for a while. But when you're an investor, you're kind of constantly talking to people because, you know, startups are constantly raising money or doing this or needing help. And, you know, it, it just keeps me in the loop more than I otherwise would be. I like that. And you mentioned Naval and you, you've said before that you're friends with Naval and I'm curious if you've done the 60 minute 60 day meditation challenge Naval has provided. No, I have not. Um, what are you waiting for? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a, as much of a fan of meditation as he is, I think. Oh, okay. Why not? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just don't feel like I need it. I think I, I try to like meditate 24 seven is kind of my <laughs> goal. Like just to pay attention to what I think and do all the time. And every once in a while I do meditate for like an hour. Um, but yeah, I just haven't, like felt the need to build it into like a formal kind of practice. That's interesting. I think that your painting and your drawing is a form of meditation. And you've said before that you do three hours or six hours a week. And I don't know if you're still doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, every Wednesday and Thursday for three hours, I try, you know, on an ideal if I don't, I'm not traveling or something like that. I, yeah, I try to, I try to draw and it's, it is, it is meditation in the sense that you're really trying not to think about yourself and your ego and you're kind of fully, you're, it's almost like an out of body experience in a way where you're like, so focused on what you're drawing, uh, and like measuring angles and proportions and, and 
and stuff like that. Um, and obviously you're not spending that time. You know, I, I think the most important thing, honestly, like what I would recommend to people is just to not stare at a screen, mm. right? Like it doesn't even matter. I think I do. I mean, it probably does matter, but meditation, if it's meditation, awesome. If it's like going for a walk, great without, you know, without a phone, without headphones, without music, etc. Uh, whether it's going for a drive, even, uh, I think all of those sorts of things count. I think the worry that I like the thing that I try to pay attention to is like, am I just mindlessly staring at my phone? Like, did I stare at my phone for 30 minutes and then I didn't actually get anything out of that experience. Right. Um, that's what sometimes I worries me. Um, like for example, did I just scroll Twitter for 20 minutes and I didn't really learn anything. I just kind of learned you know, I was just updated on what was happening around the world in, in no real meaningful way. Hmm. And with the drawing and tying it back to the NFTs, have you considered putting up any of your drawings or as NFTs? Uh, I've considered it. Honestly, I, it feels inevitable to me um, <laughs> that I'll do art and art NFTs. I don't, I, 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 the worry that I have, there's a, there's a couple things. I have a lot of thoughts on this. I've definitely thought a lot about it. One is, I, d- I have a tendency to wait until people ask me to do something before I do it. Um, Why like do you think raising that is? money? Well, partly it's because I feel like I I kind of have what I want, so I'm not really looking for that all the time. Uh, yeah, for example, when I started the fund, it was because Naval was like, "You should start a fund," and I was like, "Okay, cool, <laughs> I'll do it." I didn't know, you know. Partly it's maybe I underestimate my, myself in those certain ways. Like I don't, I didn't think of myself as someone who could run like a ten million dollar fund. I didn't know that was possible to do uh on the side um so sometimes it takes someone who's kind of done it to kind of help you kind of get to the next level in a way just by you know not by like just really just by telling you you can almost mm-hmm. right um which i think is can be very very powerful um so yeah that, that's and then the other thing is when you're trying to do something i find that like the first yes the first kind of you know signal is so hard to get right like for example if you're building a product like the first customer or if you're hiring people the first person you hire or if you're raising money the first investor who says yes or wires you the money like that's 90 percent of the difficulty and potentially 90 percent of the time spent right you spent six months getting your first yes and then three days getting the rest right something like that um and so I, yeah if, in terms of just efficiency i'd rather just wait until that first yes comes to me right and says hey like for example with the book penguin random house reached out and said hey would you consider writing a book and i'm like cool I can basically skip the entire process of getting an agent, putting together a proposal, da da da. Like, and ultimately, most people fail because um, I already have the hardest thing, which is the publisher that wants me to write the book, right? Um, so I just have I have patience, I guess. I'm kind of content doing what I'm doing, and I'm not in a rush. Like, I, I take a long view on this. Like, my first art NFT might be in 2050. Like, I don't. I'm not in a rush uh, to do it, uh, but. I think I will do it. Um, the other thing, the other concern, this is more kind of sort of technical, I guess, but uh, I believe that the best NFTs will be native to the medium. This is what I like about CryptoPunks and why I think it signals like a new kind of art movement, just like sort of cubism or impressionism or, or, uh, or something like that is because um, it embraces like a new medium. And I think the idea that you take oil paintings or, you know, I do a lot of like charcoal stuff and then take a high resolution photo of that and then put that on the blockchain. 
uh, or IPFS. Like, I don't think that is going to get traction personally. Uh, I think, I think the art that does will be crypto native quote unquote art. Um, and so if I do do a crypto kind of NFT thing, it'll probably be like a sort of a, it'll probably have my fingerprint on it. Right. Like I think artists have, a you know, it'll, you'll know that it's me in a way, but, but it will, it'll be something new and different. Um, but I honestly have no idea what that will, what that will be. Yeah. My first reaction to that is one, I'm your yes, because I would love to <laughs> buy or support you in some way Thank because you. I see your vision, right? You've said, I want to be one of the top 1% figure drawers in the world. Well, Okay, like yeah. I believe you have the capability, the work ethic, and the talent to potentially do that. So therefore, your first drawings are incredibly valuable because, I mean, mm. imagine owning one of the pieces of Picasso before he was Picasso. That is incredibly valuable. That is, to a creator, mm-hmm. more valuable because that's part of the process. That's what I'm trying to do with this podcast is I know I'm not the best podcaster in the world yet, but that's my intention. And I want to put out the episodes in the beginning that aren't that great because it shows people what's possible if you keep going. And this is a way to actually support you financially. And obviously, you might not need it, but it's it's a way to signal to the world, I was there before he became yeah. one. And what I, what I love about NFTs is like it allows other people to profit and, get, and invest. Yeah. Like I don't really need to make more money, but I, I, I would love if my early adopters and my early fans did mm-hmm. right like if you could invest in me and then i do some and and you know do some interesting things then, then i mean you know this is like elon right like i invested in in tesla it was like the first investment i ever made i think was in tesla it was like a two billion dollar company i think at the time um but i read about elon I, like i knew who elon was because of tech stuff and i was like oh wow he's this is crazy um but he's a he's a badass no one knows about him yet mm-hmm. uh so I, you know, invested like a little bit of money and, and, you know, didn't hold it this whole time or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, one of the great, and you know, this is, this is something I try to remind people of actually with NFTs and crypto is like, you can do this. Like you can find an amazing person and invest in them. They just need a public company. <laughs> right. Like they just like, so I, I find it fun, funny sometimes. Like I have a friend who, who tweets about like, oh, you know, every creator should own a chunk of the platforms that they help build or whatever. And I always, I'm, I'm always like, I kind of like poke fun at her. I'm like, well, you know, you can invest in Facebook and you can invest in YouTube through Google. Like these are, these are platforms that you can invest in if you want to. Uh, and actually many people do. Um, so the, the, you know, obviously crypto is like, is more equitable and, you know, obviously going public is not available to most people, but I have been talking to the New York stock exchange actually about, well, why not? You know, what what if you could actually press a button and then Gumroad is now a public company and it shows up on Robinhood? Like, why not? Uh, so, you know, kind of harkens back to the what I was talking about, getting excited about liquidity. Um, you know, how do you, how do you unlock that for more people? Um, certainly crypto will do it for many assets, but I think many other assets will not be able to take advantage of crypto that should be able to take advantage of, of the liquidity component. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very kind of excited about that generally. Well, so how far do you think we are from someone saying, all right, press one button and then have a stock available? 
Um, yeah, I mean, my, I think 20, 2030 is, I think, reasonable. Um, I'm optimistic, so I think it won't, it won't be a button click, but I think companies, for example, like Gumroad, I think if we wanted to support a new payment channel, it would take us like a month of engineering or two months of engineering and some design and stuff like that, right? So like that level of work, like almost like if going public was a feature that you could build instead of, you know, a sort of a, a whole different thing that you got to do. My guess is hopefully by like 2025, um, 2024, uh, something like that. Um, I think we'll start seeing experiments. Like I hope Gumroad is one of the first as soon as, honestly, 2022. Like it's my number one priority to figure out is is like how do we do this? And my actually kind of my hope is that the crypto stuff is going to force Congress to make it easier in the kind of fiat world because they'll want to take some of the pressure off crypto and if I can convince them, and not just me, right, but broadly, the world has to convince them that, you know, more people should be able to invest in startups. And if they do, maybe some of the, the heat of crypto will kind of dissipate for, for a brief amount of time. And it'll buy some time in terms of regulating crypto, et cetera. And, and uh, yeah, allowing companies, small companies to go public like Gumroad might be a way to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is kind of one of those examples, right, of like, I'm very confident in this mm-hmm. prediction, but... I can't do it, right? Like, I can't just, it's kind of like starting a new country or something. Like, I can't just decide to do it. I have to work with basically the two, you know, stock exchanges, you know, the two major ones, um, get one of them to, do, to you know, and like, it's just a, it kind of goes back to the whole biology entry versus exit, right? Either you work with the system or you build a new system. Those are kind of the two options for innovation, right? You either build a feature within the company or you quit the company and build a new, a new startup, um, and I think in this case, I have to work with the existing, inf- like crypto is like the exit, right? Crypto is like, we don't work with the system. We just do it ourselves. Certainly a, an option. But I think my strategy, at least with Gumroad is like, well, there's enough smart people working on that angle. Let me work on this more boring traditional angle, working with all the people that people don't want, don't want to talk to. Um, I'm willing to, to, to have those kinds of conversations. And, and I also have a company. You know, I'm uniquely positioned in a way that maybe some others aren't because I actually am the CEO of a company at this scale and size. And I have done a, you know, a crowdfunding round with 7,000 investors, participants. Um, so I think I, you know, what, what I think about is less about can I predict the future and like more what am I basically already the best person in the world to take advantage of, right? Like if this liquidity thing happens, I will be in the top 10 list of people who can take advantage of this immediately, right? Like I have an audience, I have a company, I've raised a crowd. Like already, yeah, maybe there's like three, you know, maybe there's one, maybe it's just me, I don't know. Um, and so that's a lot of what I think about is like, what am I uniquely, what What do I almost have? It's basically insider trading, right? In a sense, like what, what and by the way, insider trading is totally legal everywhere except for public markets, right? You can invest in like in, like I can invest, like every deal I do as an investor is insider trading, right? I know information that the per, the company told me that nobody else knows, right? That's why I'm literally investing in the company. Um, so it's totally legal for accredited investors. But effectively, you want to insider trade almost on yourself, right? Like what do you know that no one else knows yet, right? Um, about yourself, like what skills do you have that no one else knows you have? Or what, what, what do you see because of where you happen to be? And my unique perspective is which i think is quite unique i can't actually think of maybe austin from lambda school is also this but 
a CEO of a company who also has like a fund who's also crowdfunded around. Like those are three different things that maybe, you know, very few people have done to have done all three of them is pretty rare. Um, so I'm trying to, you know, I'm, try, I'm doing what I can. Obviously I'm only one person. I can't do that much, but I'm having as many of these kinds of conversations with as many people as possible. And it is stochastic in the sense that like, you know, it's not going to be a linear thing with this like 1% every day and we're done a hundred days from now. It might be zero, 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 and then 40%, right? Like I might have a meeting with some Senator and then they're like, yes, I'm on board with this. Like, let's go figure this out. Right. Or something, something like that. But that's kind of what it takes. Like it takes the 99% of trial to figure out like the 1% of what you should have done in the first place. Right. You have to meet a hundred people to be like, Oh, that's the one person I should have met. But the only reason I met them is because I met these hundred other 99 that led me to this person. Right. Is the game trying to get to know yourself better or, and, or to just do a bunch of stuff and look back and be like, Oh, that's who I am. What do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think about this in the context of art a lot. Like, why am I figure drawing? Why? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Like, it's fun, I guess. Uh, it feels good to get better at a skill in a very kind of linear, controllable way. Uh, as long as I put in the work, I generally get better. Um, and I'm competing with dead people, effectively. Like, all the best people are dead because it takes decades and decades to get really good. And so you're either super dead or super old, right? Uh like there's no amazing master figure drawer at 25. Like it's, it just takes, you know, a lot longer than that. Um, versus technology, because you're building on new stuff. Like you're not really competing. Like a veteran in Bitcoin is like, or in crypto is like, has been in it for like seven months or something, you know? Uh, it's just a very different sort of scale, um, for, you know, and different, different things. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination. I think you, you should try to find yourself in the sense that like, like I, I even do think about this with art. Like, am I painting this way because this is what was inside of me and I now just have the potential or do I paint this way because I actually, this thing is now inside of me, but it wasn't before. Right. Like, I, I don't know if there's really like, it gets very kind of metaphysical. Um, but I do think there is a large part of it, which is you, t- you're, you know, you're kind of the story that you tell yourself and you do a bunch of stuff and you look back and, you know, for example, I think it's very romantic to be like, Oh wow. Like for example, me, I moved to the Bay Area. I got a job at Pinterest. I was employee number two at Pinterest. I, you know, my stock would have today been worth at least a hundred million dollars. I was 18 years old. Uh, I quit before my stock vested. I started a company. It failed. I, ra- I raised a bunch of money from great investors. It ended up not working out. I wrote an article called "Reflecting on My Failure to Build a Billion Dollar Company." That article went viral. This is, by the way, I published an article when I wasn't even doing any startup stuff anymore. I was just painting and and writing science fiction. It resonated with a million people. That got me a book deal with Penguin and put Gumroad on the map for many more people. And then COVID happened literally a year later, less than a year later, which Gumroad was very primed for, for a bunch of reasons, including probably writing that essay. And then I did it, you know, and then the SEC laws changed. And I was able to do a $5 million crowdfunding round, the first, I think, ever. And I also, in that time, raised a rolling fund with AngelList and grew that far larger than anyone would have believed possible, including myself, including Naval, like including no one knew how successful they were going to be, really. And looking back, and let, let's say I figure out the liquidity thing, like, let me let me just pretend that this story keeps going perfectly, right? What will, if, if I get to choose my own story, it would be I figure out this liquidity component, 
we take the $5 million round. We allow all of the investors who participated in that to, if they choose to, sell their position, just like a public stock, but without actually going fully public. And Gumroad becomes a billion-dollar company in value, which is not hard to do. You see what happens in crypto when anyone can buy and sell. And all of a sudden, I failed to fail to build a billion-dollar company, right? Um, that is, and but so you can look back and be like, of course, that's what would have happened, right? But I just think it's not true. Like I, I think that it happened, <laughs> and it feels like, oh, of course, I was meant to do this. Uh, but I think that's not exactly true. Like I think I could have totally been an oil painter and been super happy doing that and writing science fiction and fantasy and. Maybe I would write like the next great science fiction fantasy and that's no longer going to happen, right? Like it's just so hard to predict and it's impossible actually to know, right? Like these are not falsifiable conditions. You cannot run a science experiment on yourself in this way. Uh, But yeah, so I think it's a hybrid of like trying to find what you're genuinely excited about. Like I've always been excited about democratization uh, and startups and technology and software, et cetera, uh, and building an audience. But, uh, you know, how that manifests could be very different, right? Um, How close were you to and, not publishing that article? Um, that's a good question. I, I didn't know that it was good slash worth publishing uh, for a while. Like I started working on it in December of uh, 2018, I guess it was. Um, I had some conversations. I wrote like a rough draft in like six, seven hours on a Saturday, I remember. Um I sent it to my writing group and a few other people. And then I got some feedback that was like, this is interesting, but very weird. <laughs> like, and, and, and it changed a lot. So I think at that point it was. We were with you publishing or not publishing that piece. You said that one person, you, you were saying one person and then you cut off. Totally. Yeah. So basically there, there, there are two people who really kind of made that piece happen uh, after I sort of wrote the first draft. One was someone who basically said, this thing makes you more likable, which was very nice to hear because I was worried. You know, I kind of wrote this article about my failure and and I didn't know if that was like the right approach and and, and these sorts of things. So so that was gave me confidence that, okay, like people aren't going to hate me <laughs> when I hit publish on this thing uh, or like, you know, lower probability chance. But then the other one that was really meaningful was uh, another friend of mine in my writing group, James Yu, who said he read the he read the draft, which was at the point at that point like much more about just like broadly like what had happened at Gumroad in the last eight years. It didn't have like a point to make really. Um, but he read it and he said, you know, there's this one sentence that I think is really what you're trying to say here, which is building a billion dollar company is a terrible arbitrary goal. Like that, that was the sentence. Uh, and when he told me that, I was like, oh, of course, yes. Like this is not just about like the last eight years of Gumroad, but it's about this idea that we have these sort of billion dollar or bust ideas. I had them, the industry has them, maybe society as a whole has them. Like we're just kind of obsessed with net worth and all these sorts of things. And once I figured that out, then I knew this piece was going to get published. It, it took another you know, three or four weeks, I think, for me to edit and 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 figure out. But at that point, I was like, okay, th- there's a point to this essay, which is I want to sh- highlight sort of this 
dissonance around building billion dollar companies and creating value and capturing value and valuation and profit and impact and all these sorts of ideas. But it, that gave me the the focus, I guess, of like, okay, this is the one sentence that I need to really build up to and and resolve ultimately at the, at the end. So, And there was no part of you that was like, this is bearing too much of my soul. I shouldn't put it out. There was definitely a lot of that. Um, I knew it was going to be worth it. And I honestly, like just the, the, the appeal of not having to think about all this stuff by myself anymore was, was very, very appealing to me. Um, but yeah, even honestly, when I hit publish and I, I even remember pasting it into medium and making a few changes to the intro on medium, you know, because that was like the first time I'd seen it in that format. Um, even when I hit publish and on that tweet, I was like, I was like, hmm, <laughs> this is going to be an interesting day, like for better or worse. And after like 30 minutes, it had really resonated. I got a lot of positive comments from people I hadn't talked to in a long time. And it started going viral on Twitter. At that point, I was like, okay, this was the right, it was the right decision to hit publish and I don't regret it. And I still probably underestimated like, wow, this is not only a good decision, but like almost like a defining moment of my career. Um, probably it took me like a week to be like, okay, wow. Yeah. This is really kind of has resonated much more deeply with, you know, even today, like when I meet founders, like a good chunk of people have read that essay and that's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. James Altucher has this great quote or idea of like, you shouldn't publish something unless you're nervous to publish it. And it reminds me of this and yeah. the impact that it's made. Yeah, even this other essay I wrote, no no meetings, no deadlines, no full-time employees. Like I've written stuff after, you know, the famous essay, but I've never hit publish on it. And it's primarily kind of for that. Like I wrote it and I'm like, this is good, but it's, it doesn't make me nervous <laughs> enough to publish. Like I need to, I want to make sure that I'm saying something that's not easy to say, hmm. you know? Uh, like for example, in no meetings, no deadlines, no full-time employees, I said like, we don't give any employees health insurance we don't have social channels in slack we don't do any retreats like working at gumroad is just like this very transactional thing which is awesome and that was scary <laughs> to hit publish on I, there was also a really good chance that people would have been like what you know uh that's not good that's not moral or whatever um and certainly there were some people who did that on twitter but yeah i really want to make sure i think that's a really good heuristic like it should make you nervous um, you shouldn't just publish it because you believe it's going to do super well. You almost want to make sure that there's something in there that scares you a little bit. Um, and I also think readers know that too, right? Like readers want to read the hard stuff. They don't, they know all the, all the obvious stuff they already know, I think. Definitely. I want to be respectful of your time. So do you have any closing thoughts to this conversation? Um, no, I mean, if anyone's interested, you know, follow me on Twitter at SHL, check out the book, the minimalist entrepreneur and all the usual suspects. <laughs> um, and thanks for listening. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing your story and so much here. I'd still love to talk to you about, but maybe we'll have to do a part two another time. Part two. Thank you for taking the time. <laughs> Sounds good. And I really appreciate you. Awesome. You're very welcome. Take care. Have, have a good rest of your day. Bye. Hope you enjoyed that episode. 
with Sahil. I had a great time recording that. I wish we could have done it for longer, but Sahil had some time constraints on his end. And hopefully we will be able to do it again because I have a lot of more topics that I'd love to talk to Sahil about. So if you did enjoy it, let Sahil know. Shout him out at, at SHL on Twitter. He's got a pretty cool handle. So yeah, that'll that'll make him more inclined to come back and spend some more time with me so I can ask him questions about his writing process, why he dedicated the book to his mom. We didn't even get into the book. So yeah, this was great. And I love when the conversation can go in whatever direction it goes because the person is at peace with themselves and I'm at peace with myself. So thank you for listening as always. I appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. It means the world. And I will see you in the next episode. Peace.